Hello and welcome to the seventh episode of the Meet the Entrepreneur podcast. This is Artin Zahiri and I am the co-host of this feature along with Ramir Kashwani. Today we'll be talking to Babson alum and good friend of the show, Ryan Laverty. Ryan is the co-founder and chief operating officer of Arist. Arist is a text message learning platform that helps Fortune 500 companies and leading nonprofits rapidly train their employees entirely via text message and WhatsApp. So in order to kick it off, why don't you just tell us a little bit about uh, what Arist is and then how you ended up founding Arist in the first place and why? Yeah, yeah, sure thing. Um, so Arist is a, it's a text message learning platform. And so essentially uh, it started probably about like two, two and a half years ago now. Um, so my co-founder and I had both been uh, students at Babson. Um, he'd been running a nonprofit at the time. Um, and I'd been doing work with, with content design for a services business I was running when I was, um, I was like teaching people public speaking basically. Uh, and he at the time was, was doing a lot of nonprofit work. And, you know, he came to me with this idea of like, hey, what would it kind of look like to, um, to kind of create a, a sort of low internet bandwidth um, solution to trying to teach people. And we became really fascinated just by the learning design of it. Um, and so I like, I went to bed that night thinking about it, got up the next morning and I was like, what would it, you know, at the time I was doing like public speaking coaching and I was like, what would it look like to create like a, a public speaking course via text message? And so like a day later, you know, I stayed up and, and made that and that was our first like text message course. Um, and we said, all right, this is like a content light, internet light model of learning is fascinating. The assumption we've got to solve for that is, uh, can we actually teach someone something of substance via text message? Um, and so we like created some really basic courses, found some software that allowed us to just like manually text people um, and sent out like, like it was quite literally someone on the other end of a laptop typing these things out, um, you know, to like 100 people did some got some results. And um, and it was fascinating. It was like 78 or 79% of people had said that uh, they liked this, this, you know, method of getting this information better than um, like books or lectures or videos. And so that was compelling enough for us to kind of continue into it. Um, and so, you know, over the next kind of year, year and a half through the, the whole like finding product market fit, fun uh, and, and craziness, we, you know, we ran different experiments trying the application of this with um, academics, with uh, nonprofits, with all these different groups. And what we found actually was, you know, while we thought the internet uh, lightness of it was going to be the biggest selling point, um, and it still isn't to some degree, the, the biggest selling point was really just the short form content model. You know, 97% of people will check a text message in three minutes of getting it. And simultaneously, the biggest problem with learning content is that people don't read it or pay attention to it. And so if you can condense it down and you can send it over text, then you can have a really meaningful interaction. And so where we ended up uh, getting most, most of our traffic from was from, was from corporate learning and was from um, training these massive workforces at scale, uh, all just via their cell phones. And so today I'd say about, you know, 85 to 90% of our business just comes from uh, mostly like Fortune 100 to Fortune 500 companies. And the other 10% comes from um, nonprofits or kind of one-off use cases. Yeah, that's, um, that, that's so, really, that's really great. Okay, you can go ahead. Yeah, I was going to quick question. I mean, Ryan, it's a great idea. Um, it makes so much sense. And how, how exactly did you like, um, did, did, did Michael, the founder reach out to you? How did you actually like become a part of it? So at such an early stage. Yeah, yeah. Um, so my, I mean, Michael and I were living together. And at the time, you know, he kind of came to me and was like, Hey, I have this idea. I know you're really into the world of like content design, you like really building teams. I'm really good at like, um, kind of just throwing this stuff at the wall and seeing what sticks. And I think from the early stages, you know, uh, we, we, we had like a two to three month period where we just practiced like working together to see if it would work as co-founders. 
Um, and we were just like, hey, if we're going to be equal partners in this, we want to make sure we have like complementary skill sets. And um, and I think you know the the lesson in there is uh, for any for any co-founder relationship, you want to really make sure that um, you you do actually like both you work well together and share a lot of the same values, but also you have really complementary skill sets. Like he will do, he will go through our finances and stuff like that. And that just puts me to sleep and I can't focus on it at all. While, you know, I'll do like our customer success and scale up and talking to the same customers all day, like wouldn't interest him as much, you know, so everyone's kind of got their things that they're, they're really good at and they can um, just kind of, just kind of handle. And even now, you know, he'll do a lot of like our initial sales, pass someone off to me and then, okay, we've got a hundred people at Amazon using, how do we get a hundred thousand people at Amazon using? Right. And so we're sort of tasked with these different challenges, but um, I, I think that was the that was the fun part in the early days is we didn't really formalize a relationship for two or three months because we just made sure, hey, do we really like working together? And then it was like, okay, we like working together. Let's file the C corp, get the cap table, give ourselves each half the company. Like, let's let's do all of that, you know. So um, that was sort of how that came to be. Awesome. Uh, that that's uh, that's really great. Um, you know, I wanted to follow up on two things, and one of them was, uh, you know, you kind of focus on like low internet or light internet rather as uh, kind of what you thought the selling point would be. Can you just go into that and then also talk about, um, you know, some of the projects that RS has done outside of the US and outside of like the corporate world? Because I think that that's like a really fascinating point. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, um, and it's still, it still is a, a pretty big selling point. It's more so though the access to um, like high broadband internet. And so, you know, while, while uh, 25 to 30% of the world has access to the broadband internet needed to load a full video. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, about 75 to 80% has the access to kind of the level of either internet capability or just SMS capability to just receive a text or WhatsApp message. That's a, that's a stark um, difference, right? Like, right, pretty right. And so I think the biggest misconception people have is when they think low internet bandwidth, they just think like the poorest communities in the world when the reality is that for most of the world, um, there's still not the, like you could have enough internet to do email, but not enough internet capacity to load a video. And right. that middle zone is billions of people. And so if, whether you're, you know, a massive nonprofit or a massive corporation, um, like, like, you know, let's say Petrobras in Brazil, right? Like these massive companies that have hundreds of thousands of employees, um, you know, they, they don't have that strong internet. Some of the coolest use cases that we've done, you know, when COVID started, we had done, uh, we, we did courses on COVID-19 health and safety with, the, um, with a partnership between a, uh, the Sudanese government and the British government training journalists. And so we trained about you know, 1,200 journalists in Sudan. Um, we ran a course with the Naki Valley refugee camp in Uganda. And so they were doing, um, you know, they were doing a lot of COVID-19 health and safety training. They didn't know how to, no one had ever taught them like how to accurately um, do that, the, like uh, hand washing protocols where you wash your hands like a surgeon, things like that, you know. And so um, that was that was really cool work, and it's still a lot of a lot of work that we do. And like I said, even though like ninety percent of our revenue comes from like Fortune one hundred to five hundred businesses, I would say probably like 40 percent of our use cases sometimes is, is still a lot of those use cases. Um, more recently, like this week alone, you know, uh, we're, we're building coursework for. Um, Ecom trading, which is a large global agricultural supply chain. And so they're training farmers in Ecuador on how to um, be financially literate. And then we're also doing training for um, farmers in India between a partnership with, um, with PepsiCo and uh, USAID. And so they're teaching um, these women in India who are potato farmers how to get better yields, how to, you know, look at the like accurate sizes of, of what you're producing. Um, so we still see these really fascinating use cases, but it, it still ends up being like training 
um, employees, but it's fascinating because it's training them on things like financial literacy or agriculture. Right, right. And that's, um, you know, I think that's like really important and I'm really happy that, uh, you know, you, you guys are doing like that good work, um, you know, all over the world. Because uh, I feel like people and, and certain companies fail to kind of expand outside of their geographical zone. And I think that that's so important. I mean, you know, every, since everybody's kind of remote anyways, it only makes sense. Yeah. And on, on that point, right, um, you know, Eris is perfect for remote learning. And, you know, obviously, as a result of work from home, uh, COVID-19, it's just, it's just been huge for the sector. Like, how big has that been for the adoption of Eris? Have you guys um, really noticed a large tailwind from, from such a generational shift? Yeah, for sure. So in, initially, it was really bad for us. And then, um, and then I think we were very fortunate, especially at a time when it was really tough for a lot of people. So, you know, the way that basically worked is January, February of 2020, we've got um, these big potential corporate contracts, we're like, okay, some of these are kindly going to finally going to come to fruition, you know, these enterprise contracts that took us so long. And then, um, you know, second week of March hits. And while, you know, ed tech and most like remote learning for schools takes off, uh, for, for corporations, a lot of employee training is a, dis a discretionary expense. And the last thing companies had was, was extra money to spend. And mm -hmm. so within a two week span, absolute radio silence, people I'm working with get fired and start asking me to help them yeah. find jobs. Like it was really, really tough. And so we basically sat down in March and we were like, this is over. Like, it's not, you know, we're going to have to find some sort of new angle or something. Um, and we pretty much had radio silence from our industry for like two months. And that was really tough. Um, and, and what we did during that time was we just said, you know, we're not sure how we're really going to make money, but uh, we have this tool and we have this access that people can use. And so we, um, we worked with a number of school districts and actually just gave for about four or five months, ended up giving free access to teachers all around the U.S. And so we saw a lot of really cool use cases for things like homework delivery and um, flipped classroom modeling where you'd like teach concepts ahead of time and then go into a Zoom session. Um, mm -hmm. So these really, really fascinating use cases. And I think that, you know, the lesson there for us was, was to always just kind of like keep doing that, like, like never to give up there and to keep doing that, um, you know, exploration. And uh, so that was, that was an interesting time. And then around like, you know, May or June, we saw things start to pick back up. We got into the Y Combinator Accelerator and so they helped us to um, kind of like really pushing us to focus on just one specific segment. And um, we still, you know, we still have, give a lot of teachers free access to the platform. It's more so they don't have the, the budget to, um, to pay for tools like that. And so for us, it's better to just give it for free and then have some great like advocates and use cases out of it. Um, and I think, you know, the, the most interesting thing for us is that uh, before, before COVID, the reason I say it's long-term beneficial for us is that before COVID, uh, about 30% of our use cases were standalone text message courses and 70% were reinforcement. And so it was part of a larger learning journey, video module, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but after COVID, you know, people's preference for remote training came up. They realized how powerful it was. And it also, I mean, it accelerated the learning industry 10 to 15 years. And so now we see that's flipped and I'd say about 80% of our use cases are completely standalone um, text courses, which is better for us. Companies do all their training via ARIS and about 20% is supplementary or they'll use it for reinforcement. Um, so I think for, for the company, it was just really beneficial for like the, the long-term adoption of actually accepting that this was a beneficial medium. You know, we'll never know if we were just too early at some point, but um, I think we were definitely fortunate in that. I think, I think you're right in that there was like a big acceleration, right? In terms of like how people kind of perceived and accepted like a lot of like remote learning tools. 
and it's uh, you know it's obviously amazing that ours kind of fit into that category. Do you think like just off the top of your head, like you know from working in the space, like what other what other types of learnings or companies have you seen that you think are um, going to really take off, kind of in 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 an inventing or reinvigorating like ways of remote learning? Yeah. Uh, so, so we actually just ran a webinar on this last week, so it's pretty fresh of mind, but oh, nice. the biggest things, I mean, so Aris is what we call a nano learning tool. And so there's always been this big push for micro learning, which is engagements that are 15 minutes or shorter. Nano learning is things that are, um, like two to maximum 10 minutes in length. And so really small sound bites. If you think about where Gen Z learns most, it's TikTok, it's Twitter. Um, and so engagements that are just really, really short form are, are taking, uh, are taking you know a leap. I would say modular content too. And so for developing remote learning materials, um, anything that's copyable, that's editable, that's widely shareable, those are popping up a ton, both in academia and in corporate learning. You know, if I can spin up an entire new training, it shouldn't take me weeks and weeks to build everything from scratch like people were doing before. I should be able to copy an old one and you know edit it as easily as a graphic designer would use a Canva file. Um, and so that's that's something that is you know being seen a lot in the content creation side. I think the biggest thing is really just um, kind of the the meeting people in the flow of where they are. And so, you know, remote learning, remote work means that people are uh, on Zoom all day. They have video fatigue. They don't want to sit and watch another video. So people have had to get really creative with different mediums. And so they're asking themselves, okay, not just how do I send it to someone, but what's the optimal time? What's the optimal length? Um, and, and because people aren't in the classroom, it's forced people to really think about, you know, how do we actually create sustainable hybrid solutions. And so what, what types of things should you teach a student or an employee at home versus um, in the classroom or in the office so that when they get in the classroom or office, they can use all that time for discussion, for relationship building, anything that's lecture or term definition or anything concept oriented uh, should, should completely be taught remote. And I think will be even after COVID's long gone. And Ryan, the way the AIRS platform works is I mean, you guys are basically the technology provider and the customer can use it to design the courses or are you guys involved in course creation as well? Yeah, so we um, will typically um, involve ourselves in course creation sort of in the onboarding process and we'll actually mm -hmm. train their learning designers on how to effectively create these mediums. We had to, like, we wrote the white paper on this, we wrote all the guides on this, um, but, you know, we are not a, like, content creator per se. We'll actually, right. we've started doing a lot of cool things with uh, with the GPT-3 AI and a number of other tools to do what we call content reformatting. And so we're not creating content, but we're going into companies and saying, look, you've got hundreds of, of courses, uh, give us a few weeks, we can convert these all into text message format. And then most of your content resources are sitting in this format in the ARIS platform. And so most of what we're used for is still, I would say like the design and the, the delivery and they'll do their own content design. But we do a lot of handholding with that because we want to make sure people, you know, use the, use the medium right. And I think a year or two from now, um, we'll barely touch that process just because it will be much more widely adopted. So I have a, I have a follow up question on that is, um, you know, right now SMS is obviously and like WhatsApp are like the two main highways. Uh, do you mm -hmm. guys think about expanding into like other messaging platforms, like maybe like Telegram or you could even do like other social media platforms like Twitter and, and, and Instagram? Yeah, so we're doing, um, so we're actually doing a platform rebuild right now that'll finish up end of January. And, you know, we're looking at integrations with Slack, Microsoft Teams, and even email. Um, you know, the thing to keep in mind there is that uh, there's been, you know, stuff done over those mediums before and they have lower completion rates because things get lost in a feed, especially if it's an email, for example. Um, but it's also worth noting that there's sort of a, like, internally, we've called it last mile learning. There's a 
you can you can tax 98 99% of employees but there's that 1% who you know still has like a flip phone from 2004 mm. and doesn't carry it with them right um, and so for, for that group, we want to make sure we have options so that everyone can get their learning. And so for us, it's, it's, we'll, we'll open those options, but at least at the start, they will be sort of secondary and tertiary. Like it'll ask, do you want to sign up for this course via SMS and WhatsApp? And there will be like an, I can't button. And if you hit the, I can't button, then it'll show you some other options. And right. we'll, we'll be very, we're usually very like get things out there, test, uh, see how they go. But with something like that, we're very cautious because Slack and email are one of those things that it sounds easier. <coughs> for a training a training leader at first glance, but they don't realize that um, it could potentially lead to worse outcomes down the road. Got it. Got it. That makes sense. And um, I, I, I wanted you to just uh, spend a few minutes or, or just a few moments just telling us a little bit about the Y Combinator program. Obviously, like it was, um, you know, like remote this year, which I think is my, might be like the first cohort that has done that. So that was obviously like a new experience for Y Combinator as well as obviously for the new class. So um, yeah, why don't you just tell us about how that experience was and like how much that kind of helped Aris in like its growth and development as a, as a seed stage company. Yeah, I think YC helps a lot. Uh, obviously it's a, it's a great program and if anyone's considering it, I would say definitely do it. Um, you know, I, I can't speak to the in-person experience versus remote because I've only had the remote, but right. from, from what a lot of our partners said, uh, it was a really good experience because they got more FaceTime with us. Um, we got to, you know, speak with a lot of our batchmates a lot and really got to be pretty close with them because everyone was, especially in the beginning, like kind of overcompensating by like meeting a, a lot of folks. And I think that helped a lot. Um, but connecting and, remotely um, was, was it kind of stimulated that. Right, like, oh, I want to make right. sure I want to do that, you know. Right. And my batchmates were also from like all over the world and so many more international founders had access to YC this year because it was remote. And I think that that was one of the, the really good sort of unintended benefits there. Um, as far as the, the program itself, like it was amazingly helpful. I, we would not be where we were today without it. And I think it's, it's there, I think there's sort of a, um, there, there's an idea that you go through an accelerator and it's helpful because they'll like hand you like connections or clients and, you know, accelerators can be helpful with that. But I think what YC does well and a lot of this stuff is public is, you know, they, they really push you to like have the right mindset around founding. So, you know, what experiments are you running? Are you talking to users? Are you building things people actually want? Um, where's your focus? Like, is all of your focus in this one thing? Um, you know, are you doing these intense like two week kind of sprints where you're trying to optimize for one metric, trying to hit one goal? Um, and then, okay, throughout that entire process and that entire cadence, are you being, you know, mentored well by these people who can kind of guide you in the right direction? And I think one thing that they like to say that um, is a good way to think about it is, you know, if you talk to a successful founder, their sample size might be like one or two. If you talk to a successful VC, their sample size might be like 20. Um, a YC partner, their sample size is like 500. And so it's, it's really, uh, they, they've, in this industry of tech, in this stage of early stage startups looking to raise money, right? Um, they've really gotten this down. And I think that's a, that was a lesson for me in entrepreneurship in general is a lot of like entrepreneurship lore and education is, is very, very general. Um, when it's just, it's so, a lot of it's so industry specific in terms of what you measure, what you focus on, the types of people that are successful, the character traits of people that are successful, that it's best to really kind of like look inwards and say, okay, for my specific industry, for my specific company, what are the things that focusing on has, has made people successful? Right. Um, so yeah, I would say it was, it was definitely very helpful. And um, I understand that, like, obviously, like, after after the last demo day, you know, you guys were able to, like, close, like, a $1.9 million seed round, which, like, congrats, like, that's, like, a really big milestone. Yeah. Um, Congratulations. You know, for, 
for early early stage companies. But before you talk about that, um, I want I want to know if you could just spend a little bit talking about your first investor, who, um, you know, I believe it was Fred Kang. Uh, you know, he's, uh, you know, I, I think that that's a really fun story. And uh, yeah, if you could just share it, that would be great. Yeah, sure thing. So um, I guess, I guess context is that for the first year, year and a half of the company, like we were broke, we spent like $1,000 in the first like year of the company. Um, because it was, it's kind of a fun challenge in the beginning. Like how can, when you have no money, how can you get customers or figure all this stuff out with pretty much no money? And um, I think outside of tech, that's obviously harder, but uh, yeah. our first, the first time we ever got money was we'd like won it through a pitch competition. Um, and that got us through the summer, but our first ever investor, yeah, was, um, so, so the, the backstory is we did, uh, as you two know, the e-pitch competition at Babson. Um, and I had pitched in front of like Jamie Siminoff and Fred Kang and all these people. Um, Fred Kang, he is the founder of Sunrise Duty, which is the custom, uh, the, the duty-free shops in China. And he's a really great guy. And he's a, he's a Babson alumni and he is an AKSI alumni, um, which is a professional fraternity that of course that we were all in at Babson. And uh, Fred's, Fred's really great. I had met him the night before the competition. Um, and he was like, oh, like, you know, did the handshake with me. He's like, oh, you're a brother, you know, and, 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 um, and he's like, but, you know, I, I know you're pitching tomorrow, so don't tell me anything. Don't tell me, like, I want to go in completely, no like, neutral, unbiased, <laughs> completely neutral, unbiased, whatever. Um, and then when I did the pitch, and I, I think I, I definitely own, like, a debt of gratitude to, to Fred because he was one of the first people to speak up and just say, like, hey, I believe in this, you know, I'm, I'll invest, like, 50 grand at these terms. And, um, and it's huge to, you know, th this was about a year ago now, and it's huge to, to get that first check because especially for me, like I was a senior in college and uh, it's very, very hard to get any money for your business when you're still a student. Um, and so, you know, that was, that was huge for me. And uh, he ended up like, um, you know, signing within like a week or two. And then we just felt like a different stage of company. And then after we got that first check in the door, you know, for our, for our pre-seed round, we did about like 200 grand. Um, and, you know, he was the first check in that. And I think that, uh, that that's huge because you can say to people like, look, here are the terms he invested on. Here's all that stuff. And, and, that's, um, and, and, and then it has precedent. And then it's very easy to get kind of the follow-on investments. And even with this most recent fundraising round, it always starts with one person who is ahead of the pack, who believes in you extra, puts that first check in, and then it's much easier for everyone else to follow suit. And so like a, a few really good advocates or mentors or investors those are the people who like really make the difference, you know, in, in making that all happen. Yeah, I definitely think that you need to have that champion. And I think that that's like a really important point that you touched on for anyone who is, you know, who is thinking about starting a company that is worth investing in is that you need to have those champions um, who can lead you around and who can, you know, kind of like, kind of like, uh, you know, put themselves out there for you. That's really good. And so then, um, you know, we've, uh, we've interviewed other, other Babson, you know, alum on this podcast. And, uh, you know, we had an interview with Ben Smith, who was the founder of Goal, 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 House. Goal House. Yeah. And, um, you know, I wanted to ask you about your experiences with co-living with entrepreneurs, obviously for me, Tower Babson, but then also after the fact, you know, I felt like, you know, your group kind of like continued doing that um, as such after the fact. And I think that that's, that was like really interesting. And I thought that that was I feel like that had some sort of impact, you know, on like working on artists. I know that a lot of you guys kind of like are working on your own thing. So maybe if you could touch on that, that'd be wonderful. Yeah, for sure. So I think, I mean, obviously I owe Babson a huge debt of gratitude, like would not be anywhere near, I, I would 
probably just be working like a nine to five job had I not <laughs> gone, gone to Babson, right? Um, I, I think, you know, uh, unpacking a lot of that, because there's a, there's a lot I could talk about yeah. here, but, um, you know, I think that the, the biggest thing that Babson gave me was kind of this, this ability to be very self-confident and say, look, it doesn't matter that you're young. Um, you can affect change through experiences like, like, like being an AKSI, through experiences like running eTower, which I got to do for a year. Um, you really have this opportunity to say, look, people will believe in you because you have great ideas and because you have lots of energy and, you know, not necessarily because you have lots of experience or money, but because you can just figure all these things out. And um, the other thing Babson taught me was really that, you know, to, to be successful, like there's a million ways that, that founders and investors are successful and everyone's kind of the most successful when they just really lean into who they are and what they're good at. You know, for me, I was not like that, that persona of like a really tough, like, shark like kind of donald trump type business person like that was not me at all right i was the very like high empathy like let's not make people afraid to talk to us like let's really understand our customers and what they want how much they'll pay and um you know i I think leaning into that e-tower taught me a lot about how to lean into that because you're working with all these different types of entrepreneurs you see them all being successful in completely different ways and you learn that look like at the end of the day they're not swimming upstream here they're all just you know leaning into what makes them really, really successful, and they're helping with that. I think the other interesting learning for me, too, was, you know, uh, Babson was really good at teaching me how to, like, kind of be, you know, empathetic, be a good leader, and I think in the very early days of startup, you know, it's, it's mostly just, like, being a doer. It's just, like, throwing a bunch of stuff at the wall and seeing what sticks, and then now we've got, like, a team of six. We'll have a team of seven next week, um, and, and a lot of my day-to-day is really just, like, managing people, and so it's, uh, you know, now I get to use a lot more of those skills and it's really great, but I think that people get discouraged in those early days because um, they're not immediately applying a lot of those skills. And so um, anyway, all this a roundabout way to say like, Babson is a really good, like uh, I would call it like a really good personal growth accelerator in terms of teaching you like, here's, here's who you are, here's what you're good at, here's the most amazing like friends and colleagues and mentors you'll ever meet. Um, okay, now you've got all this in your tool belt, go kind of like change the world or figure out what it is you're gonna do, you know? Right. Oh, that's great. Um, Ryan, on, on, that, on that point, you know, we talked about how great Babson is um, for the business skills and kind of just for these soft, soft skills, um, but not, not too much uh, emphasis on the technical aspect. Um, what was your experience like uh, running Aerist without um, a technical background? One of the key questions when creating a startup is, do I need a technical co-founder? Mm-hmm. How did you guys approach that aspect of it? Yeah, yeah. And so again, all my answers to this you're getting with my like little two cents of uh, my opinion before the answer is, um, I I think a lot of people will, a lot of business students will uh, undervalue their own like agency in how much they can figure out before they bring on that person. Um, And so, you know, our first, my my technical co-founder had been um, a friend of mine I knew who was a software engineer, uh, but, but, you know, Michael and I waited to bring him on for a number of months because we were like, well, we don't, we don't know what we want to build yet. We don't know if there's a viable business yet, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so what we did was, you know, like I told you, we found some website where we could just manually text people. Um, yeah. We essentially had, you know, gone into it. And by the time we went to our technical co-founder, it was like, okay, here's a good idea of what we want it to look like. Here's these tests we've run. Like basically, hey, we know people want this. We know this is a valuable thing. And here's kind of what, what we'll need to build, right? And as a business student, you know, the reason startups fail in the early days isn't because they can't build it. It's because nobody wants it. They'll go build it and then there's no demand. And mm-hmm. so rather than going product market, you've got to go market product. You've got to figure out, okay, what is that actual, um, you know, thing that people want? And as a business student, I can create mock-ups. I can find 
some really like low tech or no code way to make this work enough to see if someone wants it. Um, and then once I've gotten that proven out, I can go find someone. And I think people will go to a technical co-founder with an idea. And for someone like that, they're not going to risk their time on it, right? Versus if you go to them and say, hey, look, I've got these mock-ups. I've shown people want this. I've got a wait list of a thousand people who are mm -hmm. waiting to use this once it's built. And, you know, I've got all of these things that show this is a really cool thing to work on. And you've seen I've done this work so far. Um, will you help me build this? And I think that's a much more compelling case because at the end of the day, you know, everyone wants to work on something that looks like it's taking off and no one wants to work on something that looks like it's, it's just starting out. And I think even when things are just starting out, as a business student, you can prove all of those things without any technical expertise. And I also think yeah, you brought up a, a good point on, on having a vision, right? I feel at the early stages as well, it's, it's, it's the first step is like having a vision and then understanding if people want that, you know, and that vision crafting is, I think those are like having a clear vision is a key success trait of any, um, of any good founders or, or um, CEOs, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, great. Ryan, maybe I just have one, this is kind of just like a random question, but you know, you talk sure. about a lot of your, um, you know, your big customers are these large enterprises, Fortune 100, 500 companies. Um, what is it like, uh, you know, how, how does it feel to, to be dealing with these companies? And also, what, how do you um, have them being comfortable from a, from a cybersecurity perspective? Um, how, how do you give them that enterprise level security that, that they're going to need considering, you know, these are highly sensitive, large corporations? Yeah, absolutely. So we had spent, um, we spent a long time in the early days on like making sure kind of all security boxes were checked uh, before mm -hmm. we actually entered into deployments. But I think again, like, you know, enterprise companies, um, it, it's like anything else in that, you know, you're working with a small subset of people within this massive organization. And while you need to check all those security boxes to, you know, do a rollout, you don't need to check them to have 10 people at the company just try using it with maybe their personal credentials and say if they would use it or not. And so, you know, for us in the early days, um, we had a very non-secure version that was just tested by like advisors in the space and, and those sorts of folks, um, VCs who'd, who'd funded companies in that space. It would kind of tell us like, look, this is either something these people want or don't. Here's about how much they would pay for it. Um, and then you can dive into doing all the security stuff. You know, now um, our, our CTO, he used to work at the Department of Defense. He's worked for a number of other startups. He can do enterprise security checks all day long. Um, but back in the day, you know, we, we didn't have that. And so I, I think the other, the other uh, thing to say here is that, um, you know, the early days of getting those clients was, was, was very, it taught us a lot. Uh, what we basically did was we, we got a bunch of advisors who were in the space. Again, like if you have a cool idea and some basic traction, you can kind of parlay that into everything else. Um, and so, you know, they became advisors of ours. They were able to introduce us to enterprise clients. That's how uh, we, we got a lot of those conversations going. Um, and then we just like, you kind of just have to learn everything. I didn't know about enterprise sales, right? We had to, how do we structure a pilot package? How do we structure contracts? And um, read books on it, watched videos, articles, got lots of feedback on our process um, and really just kind of kept going on it, you know? And um, I think that was, a, that was a really like valuable experience because every, every stage of being a founder is just, you learn a new job, you pass it off to someone else, and then you learn another new job. You know, you design a new system or process. Um, so all a very roundabout way of saying that uh, it, it, it feels interesting to work with enterprise customers, but um, it, it, a lot of it still just does feel like working with, with any, other, any other customer, you know? Yeah. No, but, you know, it's really it's great to see how far, you have, how far you guys have come. You know, it's an enterprise-ready platform. 
um, it has all the all the feature-rich functionalities that these large companies require. So, you know, it's, it's ready to go. So, uh, congratulations, Ryan. You guys have built a wonderful platform. Thank you. Yeah, it's it's been a lot of fun, and I think uh, I think we're you know there's every day is just kind of new challenges. It never like feels any different, but um, but uh, I, I think it's also you know it's been a it's been a really fun experience, and we've we've definitely learned a lot. I think uh, I think something I want to ask before we before we um, wrap this up is. Uh, what are the big big goals now? 2021, 2022. Where do you kind of see ours, and what is the you know what's the pie in the sky dream that you guys want to do? Yeah, absolutely. And so I think uh, you know for us right now we've we've sold tons of pilot packages. We're deploying at all these companies, and you know on the product side we're unveiling a bunch of new stuff. Like we're doing a whole product rebuild, like I mentioned, a bunch of new functionality. Um, and, and really kind of expanding just the limits of what the product can do, all centered around how do you give this person training a massive organization, complete visibility, how do you give them insights, how do you integrate and play nice with all of the deeply embedded learning systems they've had for 10 years. Um, and so really, really, you know, making ARIS optimal to be the go between, between all the same way that, you know, segment is for, um, for analytics systems and for where you get your data from, ARIS is for uh, content and, you know, the, the end point of delivery, whether that's like a learning management system or something else. So um, being a being a really good, you know, integration into those Fortune 500s is something we're focused on from the product side. I think from the business side, it's all about, you know, customer success and deployment, which is a lot of my day to day now. It's like, okay, you know, you've got these customers using at this big company. How do you get them to pass it around again? How do you get it to go from like 100 or 1000 at a big company to all like 100,000 employees? Um, and so a lot of our day-to-day -day is really spent thinking about, you know, what are the things that will um, kind of get this to, to have some virality within the company? What are the things that really, who do you talk to? What do you price it at? Um, how do you navigate that whole environment? How do you design a system that involves, uh, that involves them deeply embedding their systems enough where um, they're bought into it, but also just creates enough value that like they love it and just want to pass it around. Um, and I think the, the last really fun challenge of my day-to-day -day is figuring out you know, what is kind of the future of like text message learning and learning in general look like, right? Like what is, what, what, what's the optimal tool for someone to have two to five years from now that will allow them to both communicate and to train all their employees? Um, and then how do we start designing that today? And so a lot of what we do now is looking at, okay, one, two, three years out, where do you want to be? And then working backwards as opposed to up until a few months ago, it's a lot of like, okay, what did the next two to three months look like? Um, and so I think that that's been, that's been another good lesson. Like once you have resources, you kind of, like Jeff Bezos always famously says, oh, I've got, you know, my head's in like 2023 right now. This quarter was planned out years ago. Um, and I think the larger companies get, the more they have the ability to do that and to backtrack. Um, so that's, that's kind of where we're headed, at least right now. It's almost like mental gymnastics, kind of jumping between three years into the future, but also making sure that you're present-minded on achieving the goals that have to get done today in order to hit those, you know, 2023 marks. Yeah, I, I, the last thing I'll say, I love this stage of startups because it's like every, every founder I think is naturally good at one stage of startups and then they become good at the other ones. It's like zero to one, one to 10, 10 to 100, 100 to 1,000. Right. Um, I really like kind of the one to 10 and 10 to 100 because it's more, you've got more resources and you can be a lot more strategic. Um, but your, you know, your role changes again to more of like a manager, a delegator and someone who uh, has to, like it's more about the things you say no to than yes to right it's more about the focus and, and where you put your resources as opposed to the early days when you've got to be really optimistic but it's a lot of just throwing stuff at the wall and seeing what yep. sticks and so um, I, I think I've just kind of I, I've loved like the evolution of my job because it's just it would have gotten boring otherwise I think <laughs> 
no, that's great. You got to have a dynamic, you know, kind of, you know, lifestyle and, and you know, uh, kind of mindset as well. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that's great. Um, I mean, uh, I think that, you know, we covered a lot. Uh, it's been really uh, wonderful kind of having you on. And, um, you know, there's a lot of, I think, uh, kind of like golden nuggets here about like founding a company, raising around, getting that first check in and like building a product to start. I know you guys are kind of just hitting like another big inflection point now, but yeah, I mean, best of luck on uh, kind of hitting those goals, those lofty goals and uh, making sure you get that pie in the sky. Yeah, no, thanks. Thanks again for coming on, Ryan. I mean, it's so interesting. We could really talk to you all day about this. It's so nice to, to, to have you. Um, you know, uh, the, the, in, in a few years from now, this will be like one of the, the first uh, interviews of many for, for you. And I know you've you guys have been in the press a lot lately, so it's an honor to have you on. Really appreciate it. Awesome. Yeah, thanks so much. Our, our, like, our team and Ramirez, seriously, like, uh, anytime, always happy to talk about this stuff. And, um, yeah, hope you guys have a, a great rest of the day. All right. Thanks. Take it easy, Ryan. Thank you for tuning in to Meet the Entrepreneur number seven. Make sure to go to www.aris.co and sign up for Aris Bytes. Aris Bytes will keep you updated about all things Aris and all things learning. Hear awesome client stories, cool use cases, upcoming learning trends, and get early access to new features. Here at Startup Society, we want to thank Arist for keeping the American dream alive. Stay golden.